We have come now to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And so today we are making an introduction to that wonderful letter. This wonderful epistle is almost at the end of Paul's epistles as far as their arrangement in the New Testament is concerned. However, it was actually the first epistle that Paul wrote. Paul wrote it probably in A.D. 52 or 53. Thessalonica was a Roman colony. Rome had somewhat different policy with their captured people from many other nations. Rome had somewhat different policy with captured people from what many other nations have had. Rome was much wiser and did not attempt to directly change the culture, the habits, the customs, or the language of the people whom she conquered. Instead, Rome would set up colonies which were arranged geographically in strategic spots throughout the empire. A city which was a Roman colony would gradually adopt Roman laws and customs and ways. In the local department stores, you would see the latest things they were wearing in Rome itself. Thus, these colonies were very much like a little Rome. Thessalonica was such a Roman colony, and it was an important city in the life of the Roman Empire. Thessalonica was located about 80 kilometers west of Philippi, and about 160 kilometers north of Athens. It was Cicero who actually said Thessalonica is in the bosom of the empire. It was right in the center or the heart of that empire, and it was the chief city of Macedonia. The city was first named Thema because of the hot springs in that area. But in B.C., 316, Cassander, one of the four generals who divided up the empire of Alexander the Great, took Macedonia and made Thessalonica his home base. So he renamed the city in memory of his wife, who was known as Thessalonike, who was a half-sister of Alexander. The city is still in existence and is known today as Salonica. The church in Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey, and it was a model church. Paul mentions this in the first chapter. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7, he says, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So it became really a model church. This church was a testimony to the whole area that we would call Greece today. Paul also speaks of this church as being an example to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 to verse 5. You will recall that Paul and Barnabas separated prior to the second missionary journey. Paul took Silas with him, and along the route he picked up Timothy and Dr. Luke the physician. He revisited the churches in Galatia and then attempted to make a wider circle in the densely populated area of 
Asia Minor, known today as Turkey. I think he intended to carry on his missionary work there, because in his third missionary journey, he did make Ephesus his headquarters and did what was probably his greatest missionary work. But on his second missionary journey, the Spirit of God put up a roadblock and would not let him go south. He attempted to go up into Bithynia, but again the Spirit of God prevented him. He couldn't go north, and he couldn't go south. So he moved to the west and came to Troas to wait for God's orders. He had a vision of the men of Macedonia in the night, calling him, come over and help us. So he crossed over to Philippi. He found that the man of Macedonia was instead a woman by the name Lydia, a seller of purple. She probably ran a department store there. Paul led her to the Lord, along with the others of the city. Thus a city was established at Philippi in Macedonia. Then Paul went to Thessalonica, and we are told in chapter 17 of Acts that he was there for three Sabbaths, which is a very short period. So Paul was there just a little less than a month, but in that period of time, he did a Herculean task of mission work. Paul was an effective missionary. He led multitudes to Christ there, and in that brief time, he not only organized a local church, but he also taught them the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Now Paul had to leave Thessalonica prematurely due to a great opposition to the gospel. Now he was run out of town and went to Berea. The enemy pursued him even there in Berea and again Paul was forced to leave. Paul left Silas and Timothy at Berea, but he went on to Athens. After some time at Athens, he went to Corinth. Apparently, it was at Corinth that Timothy and Silas came to him and brought him word concerning the situation at Thessalonica. That record is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy also brought some questions to Paul, problems troubling the believers in the church at Thessalonica. Paul wrote this first epistle in response to their questions to instruct them further and to give them the much-needed comfort. Although Paul had been in Thessalonica less than a month, he had touched on many of the great doctrines of the church, including the second coming of Christ. Now it is very interesting here that Paul did not consider this subject to be above the heads of the new converts. The new converts there were already taught about the coming of the Lord just in less than a month. The Thessalonian church was not even a month old and Paul was teaching them these great doctrines. Once a person has been born again, they must be taught all the Christian doctrines. The apostle obviously had emphasized the second coming of Christ for believers and had taught that the return of Christ was imminent. For during the period of time since Paul had left, some of the saints who had come to know and believe in Christ had died. 
And this had naturally raised the questions in the minds of the Thessalonians as to whether these saints would be in the rapture or not. Paul presents the second coming of Christ here in relationship to believers as a comfort, and this forms the theme for the epistle. This emphasis is in sharp contrast to Christ's catastrophic and catalysmic coming in glory as he comes to establish his kingdom by putting down all unrighteousness as seen in Revelation 19:11-16. Actually, the believer's study Bible gives a fivefold purpose for the writing of First Thessalonians as follows. First, Paul wishes to express his gratitude for the believers who are at Thessalonica and he wants to encourage their growth in Christ. Secondly, Paul wishes to reassure those who were disturbed by the death of some of the believers who wondered what would happen to their departed Christian friends at the time of Christ's return. Thirdly, Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonian Christians to work and be busy until Christ returns. Fourthly, Paul needs to deal with certain errors in their thinking and lifestyles. And fifthly, he also wishes to defend his conduct and motives against some opponents who were seeking to undermine his authority and work at the Thessalonian church. Now, a more short but all-inclusive purpose statement for the writing of First Thessalonians is one suggested by Dr. McGee. He wrote thus, the epistle has a threefold purpose, to confirm young converts in elementary truths of the gospel, to condition them to go on unto holy living, and to comfort them regarding the return of Christ. You see, my friend, Paul's message offered a marked contrast to the paganism and heathenism which were present in Thessalonica. A heathen inscription in Thessalonica read, After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. You see, that statement spelled out gloom over the entire city, and it was affecting even the believers. In First Thessalonians, the emphasis here now is upon the rapture of believers, the coming of Christ to take his church out of the world. The fact that the coming of Christ is a purifying hope should lead to sanctification in our lives. There are a lot of people today, my friend, who want to argue prophecy, and there is a great deal of curiosity about it. But John tells us, and everyone who has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. First John chapter 3, verse 3. This hope should have a purifying effect in our lives. I am not interested in how enthusiastic and excited you get over the truth of the rapture of the church. I want to know how you are living. Does this hope Get right down to where you are living. Does this hope change your life? This hope should cause us to be changed. This hope should bring about a changed lifestyle.
in second Thessalonians the emphasis actually will shift from that hope to the coming of Christ to establishing his kingdom we have the hope of his coming that's the emphasis in first Thessalonians but second Thessalonians tells us of that coming of Christ as he comes to establish his kingdom now here are the suggested outlines to the book of First Thessalonians. There are five parts to the outlines. The first part is the Christian's attitude towards the return of Christ, chapter 1. And that attitude should be to serve and to wait. Secondly, the Christian's reward at the return of Christ is the subject of chapter 2. Thirdly, the Christian's life and the return of Christ, the subject of chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 12. The Christian's death and the return of Christ, the subject of chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. The Christian's actions in view of the return of Christ, that's the subject of chapter 5. And I want you to be able to note 22 specific commands that are given to Christians at the beginning of verse 11. But for this book, I am suggesting two outlines. Each one gives a needed emphasis that is not in the other. Here is the second one. The coming of Christ is an inspiring hope. Another perspective from this different outline. In chapter 1, we see the introduction in verse 1 to verse 4. Then the gospel received in much assurance and much affliction. Chapter 1 verse 5 to verse 7. Then the gospel results. Tend from idols to God. Wait for Christ's coming. Chapter 1 verse 8 to verse 10. In chapter 2, the subject would be looked at as the coming of Christ is a working hope. First, Motive and method of a true witness for Christ, verse 1 to verse 6. Mother's side of the apostles' ministry, which is comfort, verse 7 to verse 9. Father's side of the apostles' ministry, which is charge, verse 10 to verse 13. Brother's side of the apostles' ministry, challenge, verse 14 to verse 16. Reward of a true witness for Christ, verse 17 to verse 20. Chapter 3 has an another emphasis. The coming of Christ is a purifying hope. That hope brings about the purifying aspect which is called sanctification. First, Timothy brings good report of the Thessalonians, verse 1 to verse 8. Paul urges the Thessalonians to continue to grow in faith, verse 9 to verse 13. How believers are to walk is part of the subject covered in verse 1 to verse 12 of chapter 4. The coming of Christ is a comforting hope. Chapter 4, verse 13 to verse 18. Now, that is what death means to a Christian, what the rapture means to the church. The fifth division is the coming of Christ is a Rousing hope that must lead to action. Dead believers are asleep in Christ. Living believers are work for Jesus. 
First, there is a call to be awake and alert in view of Christ's coming. Verse 1 to verse 10. Then there are commandments for Christians. Verse 11 to verse 28. These two outlines are very important when you look at them from their different angles. They kind of give you a composite view of what the apostle is talking about. My friend, what does a church look like when it functions the way it is supposed to? It may well resemble the church at Thessalonica. All of the congregations mentioned in the New Testament, the Thessalonians were perhaps the model in carrying out the instructions of the apostles. Indeed, the story of their faith spread far and wide in the first century, impressing all who heard about it. The record is there in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 to verse 9. Their example still proves instructive today. Many people in our culture are choosing to live increasingly isolated lives, putting distance between themselves and the needs of the world. By contrast, Christians are challenged to engage the world and to penetrate it with the light of God's love. The Thessalonians did that in the first centuries. Believers today can do the same. In a world that lacks hope, they can point towards the hope that is found in Christ. Hope for now, hope for the future. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for, and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.